0: Everything F1, driven by fans for the fans. And it's lights out and away we go! As Verstappen goes into turn one and goes past the
1: Mercedes!
0: Oh! And Hamilton has gone from second in the race. Try again this time on the inside and comes to the touch! Verstappen is out of the race and that's a big crash!
1: Ocon wins the Hungarian Grand Prix! Russell is still on provisional pole! This is the Everything F1 podcast with myself, Sean Kennedy, covering for James Tiller this evening. He's on a very well-deserved day off. Joining me this evening are Coops. Say hi, Coops. Hello. How's it going? Very well, thanks. I'm looking forward to my first presenting job in a long time. Woo-hoo. And Tom, how are you? Late addition to the, the late,
0: late call-up? Hello. Yes. Tired, but very well. How are you, sir?
1: I'm good. Thanks very much for, for joining along. I know, like I said, it was, it was a bit of a late one for yourself, but uh, fair play to, for coming along. Didn't want to get stuck with just coops? Nobody does, to be fair.
2: (laughs) Hey, come on, let's stop
1: building this goxman. Come on, come on. we are the everything f1 podcast you can find us on all social media platforms facebook twitter instagram youtube you can also check out our shiny new and refurbished website at www.everythingf1.com and as you're listening to this podcast uh, please do hit the subscribe button on whatever podcast streaming service you're listening to us on if you can give us a like give us a five-star review as well and we we'll give you a shout out in a future podcast This show is just going to be a little bit different. It's, it's still kind of pre, pre season. Um, and as a result, since after the, the. Some announcements of car dates last week. There's been not as much to talk about for this week, but we'll do our best. There has been some news stories worth worth giving a mention to. We're also going to take a look down memory lane tonight and have a look back at the 2009 season and the story of the remarkable Braun GP team and how Jensen Button won his maiden Formula One World Championship title. Uh, but that's a little bit down the way. Uh, we'll talk about some of the news stories first. And it's been a quiet enough week, but there are some pretty Pretty noticeable uh, topics to talk about tonight. Uh, I'll come to you, Coops, first. If you want to bring us the, the the first one that you've been reading about?
2: Leclerc Saints, and Swatchman to test last year's Ferrari at Furano this week. Uh, so Ferrari have announced a 4 days test uh, at their circuit in Fiorano. Uh, not really sure why. Maybe it's just to get them going. Swatchman, he's an F2, uh, and then of course Science obviously just coming in getting some stuff organized ready for the pre-season along with uh, Charles Leclerc as well they were probably the most improved team from last year uh compared to a lot of the uh, compared to a few others uh, in their season before uh so what well, he start the ground running uh but Autos came out and been quite bullish about what their what the what the fans should expect for 2022 so I think it's the first team that have came out and said that they were heading out with the car uh, for four days. So, uh, uh, yeah, their first bit of track action for the pre-season. Do you think? Do you think they can learn much from running around the old
1: car again? Surely they have more than enough data on it. They're not going to be running any of the the new tires or any of the new aero parts. So, is this just to get the drivers back in the swing of things, or do you think they have? kind of a deeper meaning, like what, what can they really learn from
2: this? They, they're not going to be able to learn anything <laughs> for this season. I mean, it's, it's completely different cars altogether. Uh, so I don't know what they're going to learn in terms of 2022, but, you know, there's obviously some sort of logic to it, whether it's just to get the guys ready for, you know, run over some stuff like this is our pre-season, you know, schedule. This is what we think we're going to do over the next, over the, the days with the, the 2022 car. So maybe it's the kind of dress rehearsal, uh, let the two main guys come in and they can even talk about it say, well, maybe you should move the longer runs to this team Maybe we should try that this time or whatever. And, you know, anything to allow the F2 drivers in any kind of Formula One car is probably beneficial. So mm. for Schwarzman, I can I can understand it. Uh, not quite sure of why the other two are in. Like I say, it could just be to get plans sorted and organised some stuff, get them back into the spring of things. Uh, but it certainly isn't going to be for anything to do with the 2022 car.
1: Mm. I remember uh, Carlos Sainz saying that last year's essentially identical version of this, the, the shakedown they did in Fiorano before last year was super useful for him to get, obviously, acclimated with the steering wheel, the internal systems of the car, which would have been, obviously, much more similar from 2020 to 2021. He said that kind of helped him hit the ground running uh, when we started the season, but uh, Tom, any thoughts on this? Do you think this might give them maybe a little bit of a, a sharper edge up over their kind of closest rivals? I suppose it's probably going to be, say, you know, Mercedes, McLaren, Red Bull. Well, I think
0: with F one drivers and sort of racing drivers in general, any track time is good time. Um, you know, it's even if they're spending time in the simulator you know it is helpful but if if they're in a car okay it's not it's obviously not the 2022 regulation car but they're still sort of getting getting the feeling back of going around a circuit what what the body goes through when when they're when they're driving around they're getting used to you know making the steering wheel changes you know for, for things like the brake balance or you know the, the energy recovery system or anything they're getting used to doing those things in Sort of a slightly more pressured situation. Obviously, it's never going to fully, um, fully compare to an actual race or an actual qualifying session, but it will help sort of blow out the proverbial cobwebs. You know, it's you know, it's, especially as you know they probably haven't driven a Formula car s- since the post-season test in Abu Dhabi. I'm not saying that they've been sitting around drinking mulled wine and eating mince pies you know, <laughs> since uh, since since that test. Um, but uh but you know it'll be good for them to sort of just, just get back into the swing teams, get you know, get back into the sort of the actual routine. Again, they've also been training hard and we see drivers on social media and all the rest of it posting um about the various training camps they're doing. But mm. it will certainly help them, you know, both both in a sort of physical sense and probably a mental come psychological sense, especially if they're doing things like um, testing out different strategy calls or if they're working with their engineers or, or things like that it's, it's it's all going to help ultimately
1: yeah for sure i mean as we record this on the 25th they've they've started their they're running today for their four days um and we're, we're less than a month out from pre-season testing which starts on the, the 23rd in barcelona um so yeah i suppose it'll, it'll sharpen them up moving on to their i suppose closest rivals from last year there's a bit of news coming out from lando norris just kind of a, a good news story from from lando norris um regarding mental health now we all know the importance of of mental health and how little it's talked about especially when it comes to sports people so uh, i'll throw back to you tom what, what did you make of of lando's comments about being a, a what do you say a, a health pioneer a mental health pioneer in formula one
0: um well you know lando has spoken quite candidly about his own mental health so struggles, especially during this 2019 season um and I fully agree with what you said it is something that is not talked about enough in F1. Um, I think it was the 2020 season. Oh, I may be wrong on that, but there was certainly a race. I want to say one of the Silverstone races, um, but it seems to have had about 17 in the last two years. Um, it, it was one of those races where, again, I'm sure it was Silverstone where he had a helmet, where he had a competition that was, uh, that he held for mind, um, which is obviously he You know, if people aren't aware, is the mental health tax in the UK one which I've actually used myself, um, one which I only actually used this week, and we're only two days into the week. Um, It's uh, it's it's something which needs addressing, I think, and something which people don't think about, or they're perhaps quite flippant about. And you see a lot where people will say things like, "Oh, you earn X amount of money a year," you know, "you fly the world, driving," you know you're driving in the sort of most prestigious motor racing series on the planet arguably um, what have you got to be sad about but, or what have you got to feel anxious or depressed or whatever about but if you think about the pressures that these drivers go through everybody faces pressure in their life everybody faces different pressure in their life because everybody has a different life but if you think about someone like Lando he is what 21 I think mm-hmm. You know, he, he's barely out of nappies and he's driving a Formula One car for one of the biggest names. When you hear the phrase F1, you think of three names who are synonymous with F1. Williams, McLaren, Ferrari. I always thought of those names when I was growing up. And to be a young lad driving for team days such on the rise is, is rebuilding. Is, is something which he should be proud of. You know, he, he's, you know, he's, 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 quote unquote, a, a pioneer. And there absolutely is a stigma around those who want to open up. Um, you know, if you look at the amount of hate that someone like Lewis Hamilton seems to get, especially after events in, um, you know, uh, when he, when he, when there was that collision in Silverstone, the amount of hate he got on social media, completely uncalled for, absolutely uncalled for. And some people might think that just sitting behind a keyboard or behind a phone or whatever, they're not affecting anyone. And even if drivers say that it doesn't affect them or they put a brave face on it, it will affect them. Trust me, I know. For sure. And I think you made
1: a really good point there, especially in terms of just the money. Everyone assumes, oh, they're, they're millionaires. And Lando obviously comes from a, a wealthy family. Um, but that doesn't mean anything. You know, money doesn't buy you mental health stability if you're going through tough times it can help you get the help for it um but you also have to be willing to talk about it right off the bat yeah. and very clearly and again he he has a really mature head on his shoulders for a 21 22 year old um to be doing the work that he did obviously like you said he raised a lot of money last year for for the charities um and to be talking about it now and to be kind of accepting this i suppose title as f1's mental health pioneer that, that's incredible it shouldn't really have to fall on the shoulders of a 22 year old but huge props to him for, for kind of accepting it and looking to build on it and looking to do to do more work in the future on it absolutely well said right like we said not a madly busy week in terms of news but one headline really did catch our eye which came out just over the weekend to do with the two big boys of Formula One, especially in terms of engines between Mercedes and Red Bull. I'll I'll throw to you, Coops, and
2: let you talk to us about this one. What what happened there? It looks as if one of the heads of Mercedes' engine department is joining Red Bull in May. So we know there's a couple of teams that have been out there getting a lot of folk in. Uh, Red Bull lost uh, Dan Fallows to Aston Martin. That went almost to court. Uh, I don't think it quite made it all the way to court, but it was going that way. Uh, I think it did initially like an injunction and then they've managed to sort it out. So he's uh, they've finally dealt with his uh, notice period. Uh, so he's moving over to Aston Martin. Dan Fallows was the head of the aerodynamics department at uh, Red Bull. So pretty major uh, department. He's heading over to Aston Martin from April. Uh, but, The big one is that uh, Red Bull's powertrain division has received a shot in the arm with the news that Milton Keynes' base squad agreed to a release date for Ben Hodgkinson uh, to join from the Mercedes as the new technical director. So, a wee bit of uh, uh, parallels uh, going between Aston Martin because Dan Fallows is going over to them as the technical, technical director and... Uh, Hodgkinson is heading over to be the technical director for the Red Bull's basically brand-new powertrain department, which was born out of necessity because Honda decided, again, to leave Formula One. Uh, Honda really didn't want to go back to Renault, even though a bit of Billy's best pal is no longer there. So they decided they were going to take over the IP and uh, run the the engine department themselves. Now a couple of things for that. I mean that's 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 big thing. That's a it's a big signing, and you consider that the most successful team in the hybrid era. The person who was part of it, or one of the people part of it, at Hodgkinson has uh, Ben Hodgkinson, sorry, has is now moving. So that's a that's a major coup. But also another side of it, just to kind of for people to be in the, in the loop. Honda are still manufacturing and maintaining the engines for this year coming. So it's kind of like from 2020, see with the things, the, the ties start to loosen out a wee bit between Honda and Red Bull. But yeah. to have somebody of that experience coming from Mercedes, which, I mean, if you look at the stats from Mercedes and how much they won over the last, how many years this engine has been there. And to be fair, it's the same engine, even though it's a different aerodynamics, it's still the same engine uh, till 2026. Uh, you know, Red Bull really have pulled a good one out there.
1: Very much so. They, they definitely mean business, uh, even though losing Honda. Um, the report did state that uh, his key focus will be on the new engine that Red Bull will introduce in 2025, so obviously the, 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 the regulations are freezing the engines for the next few seasons. Um, so there's not really all that much he can do with the current Honda engine. Not that it really needs it, because it is at least on par with the Mercedes nowadays. Obviously, it won the championship last year. But having that kind of foresight to plan ahead to twenty twenty five and presumably whatever engine reg changes come in for either twenty five or twenty six, he'll be probably front and center of it surely.
2: Yeah, I mean he's as you say it's they're planning for it and maybe that's part of the reason why Mercedes have let him go. You know because you know the Formula One world is full of gardening leave. You know every contract you know if you're going to arrival you're going home for six months because by the Mm. time we want you to go to arrival the stuff you know is out of date so you know that's probably the reason why they're kind of like oh well if you want to go you go because he's not (laughs) there's nothing he can do with the engine for the next few years so you know let him plan it if he if he decides he's been with Mercedes you know I don't know the gentleman but I'd imagine he's probably a very creative wants to he wants to push himself Mercedes are at that pinnacle they are the team to beat how well where else can you go with Mercedes in this era with the engines uh so it's a brand new project it's probably kind of you know made them think oh it's invigorated them a wee bit you know let's try something new this is you know different people different ideas let's uh you know let's move over there and try it you know so you know it's 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 red bull do mean business they've got the money behind mm. them i mean and you've got to think these guys are a drinks manufacturer who are now manufacturing their own formula one uh engines uh or power units i should say so it's uh it's definitely on par with some of the signings that aston martin have brought over as well so mm. uh, that's uh it'll be interesting <laughs> to see how it works out
1: for sure and tom i read recently that uh Um, I don't know if it was a rumour or a report, it wasn't really completely verified, but somebody within Honda said that they were maybe a little bit regretful that they'd decided to pull out when they did. Shock horror. That's the second time in a row now they've pulled out at the worst possible time of Formula One, and... Do you think this is a, maybe a bit of a, an indicator that they should have stuck around? They should have maybe waited a little bit longer to see the, this new era of, of engines in a few years? Because now that the, the, this current you know, iteration of the engine is essentially frozen, it's not going to cost them all that much more money to keep it running for a few years. Should they have stuck around with this kind of you know, boost from the Red Bull have
2: brought in? I don't think so. I mean, the reason that everything got the way it went... It's more because Honda had decided they were going to pull out. So they put everything on this engine. Now, a lot of the upgrades to this engine came from the decision to pull out and they moved everything from the, the upgrades were going to be in 2022 and they've moved mm. to 2021. You know, I had if they weren't leaving, they wouldn't have done it. So things would have been different. True. Tom, any, any final thoughts on that one?
0: I think maybe Honda had a bit of a knee-jerk reaction when they said they were going to pull out... Um, I don't think they perhaps realized just how strong Mercedes are. Uh, you know, just how good that pioneer is, because Mercedes have had a nail since 2014. Um, and obviously Honda had an absolutely torrid time with McLaren. Um, and just when at the end of 2016 you thought things were gonna get better, they then had the 2017 season, where I think where they I, th- I think they changed their engine layer or something. I kind of try to remember. Um, point is, they changed something in 2017 and it went to absolute cack again. Um, and, you know, they were just blowing up and failing and they were slow and unreliable. And, and just, and then obviously they had the 2018 season with AlphaTari. Um, let's not forget as well, Honda, there were rumors, uh, it was pretty much confirmed that they had signed a deal with Sauber, I think, ahead yes. of the 2018 season. And then that sort of all, just fell through.
2: It was Fred Vassour's yeah. first thing he did when he moved into Salva was to get rid of
0: it. Yeah, you know, foreshadowing hindsight, whatever you want to call it. It could have done wonders for that team, but, you know, there we are. It is what it is. I think they should have stuck around, especially with the, such a big change in, reg- in regulations that are coming. I think they should have stuck around. I get why they left, especially given they've gone out and given Red Bull their first championship. Drivers' Championship since 2013. Shame they couldn't win the Constructors, um, but, but I challenge anybody to complain about that season we had in extra Hamilton fun. Um, <laughs> but yeah, maybe they should have hung on a bit. Um, but also, you know, much, much like we already talked about, I'm not going to go over all ground, but Honda aren't leaving, leaving. You know, Red Bull are taking over the intellectual property. They're taking over the factory. They're taking over the... They're, taking over the, you know, they're, they're effectively bringing honda in-house so it's not like red bull are going oh heck we need a different engine supplier we're not going to have the same power unit the car's gonna be different if anything all it's going to do is strengthen red bull and it's odd to see a manufacturer like red bull have their own in-house engine supplier because we only usually see that from a um sorry not manufacturer from from a customer team like red bull it's very, very odd for a company or rare for a company that is not backed by an automotive manufacturer vis-a-vis Mercedes, Ferrari, etc. Alpine. I think those are the only ones, really, um, that aren't customer teams to have their own native engines. So for a company that has made its billions by ramming taurine and sugar down people's throats, um, mm-hmm. it's, it's odd, different, and exciting to see them bring their own engines in-house
1: for sure and it's a it's a nice segue i suppose into our little trip down memory lane for today is that as you said honda aren't leaving leaving unlike what they did way back when back in 2008 now i remember this but only just before we get really into the into the depths of exactly what happened how well do you do you both remember the events of what happened and obviously the, the season that it led to like december 2008 would it be when was the last time you really thought about it
0: several years ago
2: probably <laughs> <laughs> if I'm being honest for me well it's, it's weird because I actually remember the first moment I heard that I saw that Honda were leaving and I was in Glasgow Central train station I don't know what I was doing there I was heading back home and they have, they've got a big screen that says what's happening and if my memory's right I looked up and it said Honda's leaving Formula 1 I'm like oh all right again nah, that's weird and I was just like eh. and then it was just the slow drip feed about what's happening to Honda and I'm like Jensen button tries for them so what's going to happen with the team because it's the only time I remember being a Formula 1 fan you know teams have left when I was younger but I wasn't quite as tuned into Formula 1 then and it was probably one of the first times that I remember like me having an interest in it and thinking well this is different so what's going to happen Then how's this going to work Uh, I don't remember much in timescales of when things happened after that, but Mm. I just remember that for whatever reason, brain being a wonderful thing that it is, it's always stuck in my mind uh, when I saw that they were leaving. uh, And then, of course, things developed to what they ended up being.
1: Yeah, well, it it, it was a long time ago. A couple of kind of notable things that happened in 2008 that might put this into into context was uh, Barack Obama had just been elected as the 44th president of the United States. That was a long time ago. Um, mm-hmm. The Large Hadron Collider had been inaugurated in Geneva. That feels like it's been around since the beginning of time. And of course, uh, you know, Lewis Hamilton had just won his, his debut championship. He had just become world champion for the very first time with that insane race in Brazil. Uh, Felipe Massa was champion for about 35 seconds. And then Lewis, the infamous is that Glock moment, to put the the, the Braun aspect back into context to refresh everyone's memory it was december of 2008 when out of nowhere due to the financial crisis of the time and we all remember that I'm sure honda turned around one day and said we're done we're, we're we're pulling out we're we're pulling out of formula 1 and not just oh we're going to you know stop making new engines but flat we're we're gone big gone everything the team name all the engineers the engine itself everything was gone and Everyone in the company had lost their jobs. Jensen Button and Rubens Barrichello had lost their drives. Ross Braun, who they'd spent a small fortune to bring in to design this car, was without a job, and that in itself was a bit strange, the man behind Schumacher and Ferrari, really. Um, and then they went through several months of total uncertainty. And if you if you've ever read Jensen Button's first autobiography book, he says didn't he say he was on holiday on a training camp in Lanzarote when he got the call that Honda were pulling out he he was training getting ready for the new season and he just gets a call to say yeah you don't have a drive Honda pulling out of the sport like imagine how, how must that have felt for a driver who's you know in the preparation for the new season to be told yeah you're not driving next year
2: yeah I mean it was uh, I think it was like, as you say he was on holiday he got a phone call or he got told you know you need to phone this thing it was like Something out of the ordinary, you're like, you're like what, what, what am I doing? Why am I phoning now? What's going on? Uh, complete, as you say, completely out of the blue. And I think it must have been quite shocking for him as well because they spent the whole of 2008 designing the car for 2009. They never mm. developed the 2008 car and they were quite vocal at that. So every team in 2008 to 2009, they were, you know, fighting scraps. Am I right in saying that Ferrari and McLaren... Had such a battle that the two thousand and nine car was awful because it spent so much time in two thousand and eight. I think that was the year that Hamilton won one race. Yeah, if I remember right. Yeah, uh, because the cars, both the both those teams' cars were absolutely horrible. Uh, and then there's there's Honda going. They basically did what Has did last year and go. We're not touching that car. We're doing next year. Mm. Uh, so for them to then say in December, which is what. Give or take three months or so to the start of the season to go, yeah, we're out. That's it. We're gone. Everyone's effectively out of a job. No one knows what they're doing. Uh, that, it's I mean, a lot of things confusion, anger. You just don't know. And as a driver, it, people forget yes, the driver is what we watch, but they're just employees like the garage and like the catering and like the hospitality. Yes, they're the marquee, but they're still just employees. So, mm-hmm. Uh, as much as we like to think, these guys don't have as much sway as you might think uh, in certain in certain situations, I suppose. But
1: For sure. And it wouldn't. was, it was, to put it uh, mildly, late in the day when they were finally resurrected, Ross Braun paid £1 to buy the team and I'm not even going to attempt to explain how that works. <laughs> a multi-million dollar Formula 1 team bought for a pound. But he did and it was the 6th of March... 2009, that they were officially re registered as Braun GP. Now, bear in mind, the first race of that season was on the 29th of March, so we're talking less than a month. They they, they rocked up to, didn't they miss the first few days of pre season testing? The fir- they missed the first yeah. test, yeah. They missed they the first test, up. yeah. Um, and then they rock up, and Button hops in the car, and his engineer tells him, You're six tenths faster than everyone else. Put yourself in Button shoes, Tom. How does that feel? Three months ago, you don't have a job. Now you're being told that you're potentially the fastest car on the grid.
0: But like If I was him, I'd, I'd have been thinking, "Well, pre-season, pre-season testing, we don't know what fuel loads others are running. We don't know what, you know, we don't know if they're doing race runs, if they're doing quality runs, if they're doing long runs, if they're doing hot laps or, or whatever. So you, you it's never, it's, testing can always get a rough idea, but you can never take it for granted. But for, for them to then rock up to that first race and genuinely be quick, Button must be thinking, oh, "This is Christmas chameleon, and it's only March."
1: This it was a a huge risk for Ross Braun, even though it only cost a pound. It was still a huge risk because he was taking on all the financial responsibility of the team. He must have been pretty confident because he would have been obviously the, the 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 lead designer really on that 2009 car for what would have been the Honda HA or oh, whatever they were going to call it, he must have been pretty sure of their little silver bullet at the back of the car, which was, of course, the double diffuser. Anyone want to take a crack at simplifying what exactly the double diffuser did? Because I'm not going to try it. Coops, uh,
2: In the most layman of terms, it allowed the air to pass over the gearbox and round the back of the car in such a way that produced... Extraordinary levels of grip Now none of the other teams decided to go with a double diffuser And actually for the start of the season Most teams thought that the Braun double diffuser was illegal Now this is Ross Braun we're talking about Uh, And if anybody knows Ross Braun He he was in Ferrari for a long time So he knew how to come up with a rule Or come up with a, a design based on a rule In his own ingenious Ferrari style way So effectively it's a double diffuser Everyone was running single diffusers They ran a double diffuser In the most layman and simplest of terms it doubled the amount of grip that they were able to put through the back of the car, which meant they were faster around the corners.
1: I think Toyota and Williams had it as well, but they hadn't quite nailed it to the same extent as Braun, and the rest of the package no. really wasn't as good as well-designed as the Braun was.
2: It was just, it, yeah, it was a design that was perfected by Braun, in a, 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 essentially. Mm. Uh, and it, it, it just worked perfect. Uh, Jensen Button won was it seven of the first eight races or something six of the first seven six of the first seven uh going back to the first test uh, i remember listening to i don't know if it was a podcast or if i read something but it was uh they were talking about after they'd done the test jensen came into the garage and he thought when he was six tenths nearly a second faster than everybody else he thought they'd underfueled the car to get the headlines you know put hardly any fuel in the car, get out there, blast a really good lap. And the engineer went, no, it's fuel. It's, you know, it's got the fuel like everybody else. And they're like, I think at that point, Jensen's kind of like, oh, we've really got something here. You know, because it wasn't, it wasn't a trick. You know, it wasn't, it was the tr- almost the true pace of the car. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's it was a pretty, it was a very much, probably one of the, arguably one of the last, ingenious things that Ross Brawn did because after, you know, he'd done a few years at uh, Mercedes moved over to the Formula One, uh, employed by Formula One side of it. But in terms of ingenuity to go into an actual Formula One car, uh, you know, it's probably one of the last big things that he did that really caught everyone's mm. eye.
1: Yeah, of course, they went and won the, the opening race of the season with a one-two finish. I'm sure Barrichello wasn't probably the happiest because he has this, you know, pro- finally a world beating car again with a driver who has far fewer race wins than him, and he's still beaten by (laughs) him. But it wasn't all, obviously, smooth sailing. Button won, as we said, Uh, six of the first seven. He finished third in China, which Sebastian Vettel won, and kind of hinted at the future that was to come for Red Bull. But he won Australia, Malaysia, Bahrain, Spain, Monaco, and Turkey, and then didn't win a single race for the rest of the season, only managing two more podiums in Italy and Abu Dhabi. And managed to win the championship, but that second half of the season, I think a lot of people forget just how difficult that was for them and how uncertain. Button and just the the team's titles, where everyone thought, you know, okay, it was a bit of a false dawn. They they nailed this trick thing, but they have no money, and that that was it. As you said, Tom, like the car was naked. It took them till the middle of the season to get any sponsorship, and by then it was kind of too late. And you know, Red Bull were were on a charge, so that second half of the season it, it must have been tough for them to just kind of stay in it
0: yeah and you know, you know Red Bull in that in the latter half of that season had a had a rampance about Sim Vettel in the car who was gunning for his first world title which he did the following year um, but the, the damage had been done in the early season nobody thought Braun were going to be that quick maybe even Braun didn't think they were going to be that quick mm. um, Red Bull just didn't have enough races to to, to to overturn the points deficit. Dare I say it, had that happened in, say, 2021, where we have, you know, five, six more races a season, there's a good chance that maybe Button wouldn't have won, you know, you know mm. if they would have had that many races. Because, obviously, you know, that many more points on offer, for all the rest of it. But also, they might have developed the car more. Who knows? Um, because, also, I don't know offhand when Mercedes expressed an interest of when they're actually going to buy the team. So, I don't know when development for Braun stopped and sort of Mercedes took over if that makes sense.
1: Mercedes officially, uh, it was announced that Mercedes were going to buy the team on the 16th of November, so I believe that would have been after the end of the season.
0: Yeah, that's Because obviously rich.
1: it would have been a, sh- a shorter season. Um, oh, yeah. He didn't develop that car at all throughout the no, season. Not at at no, not at all. Money. I, I, they had oh, no of course he didn't, yeah. yeah. So, some, something, I'd, something I'd forgotten entirely is that, you know, a, a button has the car, he he owns it, He was he was gifted it, But not only was he gifted it, he was gifted the same chassis because he only used one. They didn't, especially back then when there was so little restriction on costs and stuff like that, teams were introducing two, three, four, five, six chassis a year, which means they were literally bringing brand spanking new cars. That Red Bull, for example, with Seb coming on form, like with the new wider nose and everything like that, was a brand spanking new car in the middle of the season. Braun, it was the BGP 00102, because Button was technically their second driver, so he was in the second car, uh, <laughs> and it is—I think it's officially technically the most successful chassis of all time—a one-for-one chassis. Yep. Because even the mp 44 yeah. had two or three of them to no. win the championship. Um, I, I, it's just in, incredible. Um, my 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 abiding memory of that of that season is obviously the the Brazil race. You know, the round sixteen of seventeen. Bear in mind also, we had the different point systems, the old point systems, there's only 10 points for a win, and arguably that that would have played a huge difference had the new point system had come in by then, who knows if Button would have still clinched it, would Seb have fought back with those new points, I'm not going to bother doing the maths on that now, but I believe he needed to finish 5th in Brazil to win it, and he was starting 14th. Uh, Coops, what do you remember about their race?
2: Or I didn't think he was going to get the championship at that race purely because, as you say, from Turkey, Roma nowhere. I think, uh, again, listening to one of our podcasts about it before, they they turned up at Silverstone, went round the track, and he was sixth, but he'd been first and second right up to Silverstone and they little, mm-hmm. what's going on. And that was at the point where Red Bull went, yeah, we've got ours, this is what we're doing, and then they went mental with it. Uh, so, yeah, Brazil, it's it's one of those, everyone has a defining moment in their career, especially world champions in Formula One. Uh, well, I mean, we've been blessed, I think. You know, we've had quite a few defining moments where uh, I was a wee bit, I'm a wee bit too young, surprisingly, to remember hmm. a lot of, you know, Ayrton Senna's big drives for back in the day, but I remember Michael Schumacher's moments the, you know, 96, you know, the Benetton years, uh, Ferrari. Uh I've, I've, I've seen Verstappen's drives in the rain last season, that epic win for for uh, uh, Hamilton again at Brazil. So I remember watching it. I remember just thinking, wow, they managed it. They pulled it out. This is not going to happen again. And it probably never will. Uh, to go back to the double diffuser, I had a quick left-handed Google while you were talking. Hmm. Part of the reason why I couldn't remember what you were saying. Uh, the loophole was that they were able to put a second diffuser uh, into the crash structure, which was fed by holes in the floor, which was a great area in the rules. And as you said, I think Williams and Toyota also did that. But due to other parts of the Braun package and the way that they managed to integrate it better to the system, it worked a lot better. So for anybody that's listening, that's you know shouting and going, oh, you're not getting it quite right. I just wanted to make sure that's what it was it wasn't a double stacking it was just to, to put another diffuser somewhere else on the the actual structure the 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 crash structure of the car
1: well I know you said earlier on uh, before we started the podcast that not that you were always the a hater of Button, but you're not exactly the biggest fan of his and you kind of thought it was a, very, a case of a you know mostly right driver but in the right car at the right time um Yes. I, I don't disagree with you. Button was always my favourite driver uh, and that kind of stems back to playing the old F1 games back in the early 2000s, back when he was in a, a crappy midfield to backmark market team and the only car you could drive as for the first few races until you gained any clout was as Jensen Button. So every single time mm. I turned on my PlayStation without a memory card, I'd open up, play as Jensen Button in Australia over and over and over and over and over again and... Um, but I was delighted when, when he won it and I, I'll, I'll never forget I remember when he was on Top Gear after having won it um, and they were reviewing that final race um, and they showed a clip of him going into t- and I don't remember seeing this in the race I only remember seeing this from Top Gear going into turn one overtaking a Toro Rosso I think for 7th or 6th or so not even the position he needed to win the championship but he's overtaking on the inside down into the center S left-hander down the hill and the tail kicks out and you think oh he's going to hit the car and he millimeters from it nearly hits the car and he claims he did that completely on purpose to scare off whoever that was in the Rosso at the time no, he does he it. what was was he telling the truth or not i don't know but that i i just i love that story and looking back i think that it all it all went wrong that that was the make or break moment for him once he made that pass he was going to get fifth eventually but when you looked at I, I look that back and still think he's going to hit him
2: <laughs> yeah I, I actually remember that now that you've mentioned it, whether I remember remember it from the race or whether it was seeing it afterwards or watching the highlights or watching, you know, they've done documentaries about the braun thing. But no, him coming out and saying that he meant that, it's like the footballer who tried to cross it to the, the striker and accidentally scored, he the, scored goal. the goal. He meant that? <laughs> no, no, he didn't he, pal. Get back in the year it's like he didn't You know, is he going to say he meant it when he spins three sixty and wipes a wheel off the car? Of course not. Uh, looks good. Uh, but Formula 1 is very much about right driver right car, right time for me Jenson Button winning his championship is very much like that in a very broader sense he's the right driver with the right car and it was the right situation could he have still won it in the Honda in the Honda powered car maybe, maybe not but it all just seemed to work everything fell into place for him to get it the minute that Red Bull found the double diffuser that worked, he didn't want to race. And that was half a season. Uh, he won the championship partly because they decided to put the Malaysian Grand Prix in the middle of rain season. Uh, and a funny story about that was there was that much rain when they stopped it and they all got half points that I think, I can't remember who it was, but somebody connected to Braun said that if they were going to restart that race, they wouldn't the Braun wouldn't restart because there was water <laughs> inside the steering wheel. When you took the steering wheel off that car and turned it upside down, water poured out from inside it. So it wouldn't work. It shows how much of a hodgepodge that car was, really. Yeah, it was. (laughs) uh, Things just clicked for him. I don't, you know, tell a laugh today. We were on the chat today and he actually turned out and said, you know, that old chestnut, it's the car, you know. Yeah, but it's partly that. You know,
0: there's an element of that. Yeah, and, and you know, it, it it is something we see a lot when people say, oh, it's the car, especially with Hamilton. Um, but car and driver complement each other. And sometimes a driver will click with the car. Sometimes they won't quite click with the car. Uh, and this 2009 season, we saw how Button instantly clicked with that brawn. And we saw the rewards that that he reaped from it. You know, so you know, I might be going off a bit of a tangent here, but it does annoy me when people think it's a car. No, it's not just a car. If it's just a car, you get in it and do it. If it's just a car, why wasn't Bottas challenging week in, week out for championships? Agreed. And I'm going to stop myself there before I go on any further.
1: Well, no, I agree with you. Um, I I agree with you completely. I don't think it was obviously you can never just say it was just the car, obviously, that Braun is a fairy tale in itself. Um, but at the same time you can't just say well anyone could have got in it and won because the other driver didn't did he exactly. he was beat And the much more experienced driver who went toe to toe with Michael Schumacher, Schumacher in one of the best cars in history of, the, of those Ferraris I'm just going to lump them all together as some of the best cars in history and he still <laughs> couldn't do it in the Bron. so Button gelled with the better. I think he he always liked a car that was smooth to him, that a good front end. He only he only really liked to turn the wheel in once, which is why those first couple of years at McLaren suited him as well. I think he really got the better of Lewis Hamilton in those years. I think he was the only one to give Seb any. 2010 obviously he fell away, but he did win some races. He won Australia right off the bat as the reigning champion. Um, 2011 obviously he had that miracle win in Canada, the best Formula One race of all time um and 2012 the, the again the, the car was always good for him it just wasn't as good as the red bull i think that's that that's the key it was it was good for him and he got a lot out of the car arguably a bit more out of that car than it was willing to give a lot of times um but it was just not as good as the red bull but in the in the brawn it was the right combination of driver car regulations and just will to win team
0: environment a team yeah for sure Um, everything just clicked for him you know know, his his engineer his team principal the engine in the back of the car the car itself the tyres it all mm -hmm. suited his driving style and you know yes he didn't go on an absolute rampant sort of oh I'm going to win every race this season you know it wasn't like a Mercedes 2016-esque domination Mm. but Button had it so sorted out at the start of that season. You know, the first half of that season. Obviously, you know, you know Pastor, he, like we said, he didn't actually win again. And that's testament to Red Bull. But bear in mind, they didn't even develop the car, like we said. Mm. It was just so good. And I don't think there's really been anything of the sort, at least
1: since. Uh, and to my mind, kind of nothing before, really. Um, you've had, obviously, the the, the one-off champions uh, since Button. Obviously, you had... Rosberg in 2016 where I don't think it was the case the kind of right driver right time it's just he rode the luck better I think he, he, yeah. he finally figured out how Lewis had always put himself in the position to get lucky and was able to do it for himself I think, I think that and he got in Lewis's head I think and just put him off in certain ways but I don't think that was as much of yeah. a case of driver car scenario it was a just a different scenarios I think Max last year Maybe a little bit more similar. Like the car was finally competitive enough. I think Max has always suited that car, but it was finally able to give him the championship challenge consistently throughout the season. And he was the right driver for that car. I think, I don't think anybody else could have got that championship in that car. I don't even think Lewis Hamilton could have quite got that championship in the Red Bull. Um, so again, right driver, right car, right time. But, uh, no, I don't think we've seen anything like the bronze since, but, that leads me kind of onto our, our, our final topic is, will we see it again? Coops, you touched on this earlier on that, you know, Honda didn't develop that 2008 car at all, purely focused on the 2009 change in regulations, which is exactly what Haas did last year. Now, I'm not suggesting that as the second driver, exactly like Button was, that Nikita Mazepin is going to be the champion come December, but could it happen again? Is there someone who's gonna find that golden nugget in these new regulations?
2: Uh, i think there's more of a chance for you to get it wrong than to get it perfectly right i think is and i th- i can't remember who it was but i read an article today actually saying that some teams will get the the new regulations wrong and there's a chance that that will happen in any regulation but i think the thing you've got to remember now is the regulations are so prescriptive so there's a very narrow window and when you've got formula 1 who for the first time ever hired a basically a formula a team to find the loopholes in the rules. And that was headed up by Ross Braun, who spent his career finding the loopholes in the rules. Mm. So they found the loopholes to close them. So these are rules that have been very well thought out, very well designed, very well researched, unlike back in the day where things were going wrong and they just came out and said, "See, cut off three millimeters off your your floor, you know, where you have... Uh, You've got Gary Anderson and Jordan talking about how they were in the garage with a hacksaw, basically cutting, <laughs> you know, shaving off bits of the because it didn't meet, you know, the the length. Because they, uh, I think it was uh, in reaction to two thousand and four, with the the Emil with Senna and Ratzenberg and a few other people, uh, you know, getting injured that weekend. That they just came out with these hotspot ideas and went like, right, do this, do this, do this. Didn't no thought, and them, am not none of that. We're way past all that. Uh I. I don't think it's going to be that. I don't think Haas are going to rock up and be one and a half seconds faster than the MDLs. They'll, you would like to think with a year's worth of development, they'll be closer uh, and we're in the mix. Uh, and I think you might find, you know, maybe Aston Martin, who really did underperform, get themselves up to maybe fourth or fifth. You might see a team drop back. I'm concerned for Alpine. I think they're they're struggling a wee bit, going by things that we're hearing uh, I think there was a comment, there was something mentioned. I couldn't find the article before we started the podcast, but I think they talking about there's already concerns about reliability with the Alpine engine, uh, our power unit. Uh, they're doing a bit of management restructuring. So when you hear that pre season and the times you hear that, you know, it's a uh, you start thinking, mm, that's not that doesn't sound good. It was like Aston Martin last year, you saw their pre season. And they kept blowing up or there was leaks or the car kept stopping or they were never out of the garage for most of the time. And it, didn't, you saw it, the rest of the year was rubbish. Uh, so yes, just to, to not digress too much. Uh, no, I think the regulations have been designed solely to stop that scenario. Mm. It's to bunch the field up, but not to send somebody one and a half seconds down the road. Now, to counter that, there was conversations to make sure that the engine regulations in 2014 did not allow one team to dominate. <laughs> well. well,
1: they spectacularly failed at that task, didn't that, they? Well, yes,
2: that worked. <laughs> uh-huh. um,
1: I, sp- I suppose uh, another kind of I suppose difference between this year and back then is kind of as we already mentioned is that Red Bull came along in the middle of the year and just brought a brand spanking new car. New design, new philosophy. It had the double diffuser thrown onto it at a bigger mm-hmm. nose. Um, And it was designed around Seb and his driving style, really. Um, That's not going to happen next year. So while I possibly agree that I don't think Haas are going to win the championship, although I might stick a wild euro on them at 500 to 1, because why not? If someone say McLaren, we're all not-so-secret McLaren fans here, if McLaren find half a golden nugget, because let's face it, no matter how how hard they try to close the loopholes, Formula 1 designers are the most intelligent people on the planet in this area especially they'll find something so say mclaren come along and they're three tenths quicker than mercedes in uh, bahrain and that's kind of how it stays it's not like mercedes can come along with a brand spanking new car in july so how are they gonna i don't know how how, how are they gonna deal with that if that is what happens tom you have any thoughts on kind of like I suppose the development race coming into this year is is the real point here is, is, is it going to be really different is someone going to fo- go, get out in front and oh well they're not, no one else is going to be able to catch up
0: I, I don't think it's a case of so much that we're going to sort of see like a big sort of shift in into the team so much but I, I think we are going to start to see differences especially as the season rolls on um, with how efficient teams are with their development, especially as a the budget cap comes in and what's well, already in place, and b the um, the allocation of things like wind tunnel testing yeah. is now is now dished out between the teams. So we're now going to see what well, begin to see, and well, I hope we're going to begin to see. Um, you can hear me backtracking already. Um, what what seems like Red Bull Mercedes especially are made of, because obviously they came you know top of the constructors and Ferrari because obviously they came third they going to have less time in the tunnel, and they've notoriously the been teams in the past that have spent umpteen's of millions of pounds on R and D um, and all the rest of it. The rate of development is going to be interesting between the teams because because mm. we might because McLaren might come into the season and go, we've absolutely nailed it, Um, you know, and then they just spend the whole season making minor tweaks, or that or, the, or they might come into the season and go, oh heck, it's an absolute dog. We've done a hash you know, it's, it's it's an absolute barge and it doesn't move. In which case, you know, they'd have to allocate more of their resources to, you know, redesigning the rear end or the front end or the front axle or whatever. So, so you don't think
1: there's going to be as big a shakeup, like the two championship-winning teams from, 2000, say, 2008 to 09, the two championship-winning teams just drop off to nothingness for the first six months. And no, I. No. Car 24 I, I, wins the championship for the second year in a row. <laughs>
0: No, I I I I don't think that. Um, I think it will close the gap between the hope well certainly hopefully close the gap between the top teams and the midfield. So we see more than a two two car attack for the for the championship. Mind you, we were lucky that last year we had two drivers from two different teams for mm-hmm. the championship and all season. Um, but uh, we're not going to go into the first race and go. Oh my god who's going to get pole is it going to be Schumacher or is it going to be Hamilton or is it going to be Max or is it going to be uh, I don't know insert driver right here going to show yeah you <laughs> well if leads to DRS up my have a shout um but it's not going to be that level of competition it's not going to be that close or that sort of even there is still going to be a hierarchy because like I said, this is where we'll see how efficiently teams operate, and this is where the likes of Mercedes, Ferrari, Red Bull—you you, know—these these these bigger teams will you know will begin to operate better. And I think if Force India was still around in its sort of previous entity, I think they'd have probably done really well because they were always a team that got the most out of relatively limited budget
1: that's interesting I was was actually going to ask do you think it favours kind of one or two groups over the others and I I would actually completely agree with you that Aston are used to working off scraps and now they have lots of money Um, I suppose in a similar way to Braun like not that they had lots of money but they were they were a manufacturer back team as Honda and then as Braun they didn't have a penny and they just had to adapt to not having a penny and getting the most out of what they had and they made it work (laughs) Right. Well, that's all we're going to have time for this evening. And uh, we hope you enjoyed that little look back down memory lane. We thought we'd bring that one up because with the, the big aerodynamic real shake, it's inevitable that a lot of people are going to make callbacks to the 2009 season. Whether we get a huge shakeup in grid or not, that was the last kind of major one. So it's going to be talked about a lot. So it was nice to kind of revisit it and talk again just about the fairy tale that was LeBron that we're unlikely to ever see again. Any last bits before we head off then, gents?
2: Uh, Not really. Uh, I'll I'll say it right now. Haas for the championship. It's going to be a one-two. Mzeppin World Champion, and Has Constructors. And yes, I am smoking
0: something strange.
1: Tom, do you want to add some wild thing that we could just come back to in December on the off chance you might be right?
0: Lewis Hamilton pulls out ahead of the 2022 season. Ooh.
1: That's actually not too wild to shout. We might be able to revisit that in a couple of weeks. Anyway, that's it from us for tonight. Thank you so much, as always, for listening. We are the Everything F1 Podcast. Please be sure to like and subscribe on whatever podcast service you are listening to us on. Find us on all social medias, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube. We have a Discord server and be sure to check out our brand new website, www.everythingf1.com. Anyway, as always, again, thanks very much for listening. We will be back with another podcast and news roundup next week. And until then, thanks again. Bye now.
0: Bye. Bye bye.